0: Good morning, CPC. My name is Will Cody, and I am the Art denominations Campus Minister at Austin P. State University. And I fill in about once a month to be the special guest preacher, and that's what I'm doing today. So when Pastor Richard decided that we were going to be preaching through the book of Judges several months ago, I was pretty excited. We could talk about Ahud, right? We could talk about Samson. Um, and, but part of me in the back of my mind was like, man, I really hope I don't get tasked with preaching chapter 19 of the book of Judges. (laughs) So you please turn in your Bibles to Judges chapter 19. (laughs) It's on page 218 in the few Bibles there. This is arguably one of the most disturbing texts in the whole Bible. It's the beginning of a three-chapter-long saga that goes from bad to worse to worse. And I'm not joking here, trigger warning. If you feel like this is something that you can't handle, feel free to leave or step out of the room if you need to at some points. I'm not going to get into depth with what's happening, but you'll figure out what's going on. So, quick recap, Judges 19, the book of Judges, actually. God has saved Israel from being slaves in Egypt, and he's brought them to the land of Canaan. And they are to be a light to the nations. This is supposed to be a place where justice and righteousness and goodness and fullness reign. And if you've been here through this series at all, or if you've ever read the book of Judges, you know that this is absolutely not what happens in Canaan, in Israel. And the author saves the worst for last. So let's read and hear God speak to us, starting chapter 19, starting in verse 1. May God bless the reading of his word. In those days, when there was no king in Israel a certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim who took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from him to her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for some, for some four months. Then her husband arose and went after her to speak kindly to her and bring her back. He had with him his servant and a couple of donkeys. And she brought him into her father's house. And when the girl's father saw him, he came with joy to meet him. And his father-in-law, the girl's father, made him stay, and he remained with him three days. So they ate and drank and spent the night there. And on the fourth day, they arose early in the morning, and he prepared to go. But the girl's father said to his son-in-law, Strengthen your heart with a morsel of bread, and after that you may go. So the two of them sat and ate and drank together. And the girl's father said to the man, Be pleased to spend the night, and let your heart be merry. And when the man rose up to go, his father-in-law pressed him till he spent the night there again. And on the fifth day, he arose early in the morning to depart. And the girl's father said, Strengthen your heart and wait until the day declines. So they ate, both of them. And when the man and his concubine and his servant rose up to depart, his father-in-law, the girl's father, said to him, Behold, now that day has waned toward evening, please spend the night. Behold, the day draws to its close. Lodge here and let your heart be merry. And tomorrow you shall arise early in the morning for your journey and go home. But the man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabez, that is Jerusalem. He had with him a couple of saddled donkeys and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabez, the day was nearly over. And the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to the city of the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into the city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel, but we will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or at Ramah. So they passed on and went their way. And the sun went down on them near Gibeah, which belongs to the tribe of Benjamin. And they turned aside there to go in and spend the night at Gibeah. And he went in and sat down in the open square of the city, for no one took them into his house to spend the night. And behold, an old man was coming from his work in the field that evening. The man was from the hill country of Ephraim, and he was sojourning in this city, Gibeah. The men of the place were Benjaminites. And the old man lifted up his eyes and saw the traveler in the open square of the city. And the old man said, where are you going and where do you come from? And he said to him, we're passing from Bethlehem to Judah, to the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim from which I come. I went to Bethlehem in Judah and I'm going to the house of the Lord, but no one has taken me into his house. We have straw and feed for our donkeys with bread and wine for me and your female servant, that's his concubine, and the young man with your servants. There's no lack of anything. And the old man said, peace to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him into his house and gave the donkeys feed and they washed their feet and ate and drank. As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, no, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, And do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. The grass withers and the flower fades, and the word of God stands forever. Let's pray and ask God to help us. Father, as we get into this dark passage, we're gonna be surrounded by darkness. It's gonna feel like, I think. And I pray that your light, your son, the light of the world would shine into all of our hearts and we would leave here hoping and trusting in him. And we pray in the name of Jesus, amen. So about four years ago, my wife and I, we were in seminary in St. Louis and we were living in St. Louis, Missouri. And I decided it was the the great time for my first ever father-son camping trip with my four-year-old at the time, son, John. So I planned the trip, and one Friday, we take off for the campsite, which would end up being the worst camping trip ever made. <laughs> so we were driving there. And as we were driving, I'd, I'd you know, taking note of the weather, but as we were driving there, the weather's even crazier in Missouri than it is here. And there were, there's thunderstorms and um, torrents, torrential rain on the way there. And we got to the campsite, it was all wet. So we decided we were gonna take a walk and let things dry out a little bit. So we're taking a walk and as we're taking a walk, there's this log in our way and our, my son, John, a four year old climbs on top, and starts walking on it and it's slippery because it's wet. And he falls off the log and he lands on the ground on his back, there's a huge rock on the ground. And he lands like on the rock and he's crying and I feel so bad. I should have been holding his hand, it's all my fault. So we turn around after everything calms down, we go back to the campsite and I'm thinking, fine, when's the fun gonna start? It's gonna start at some point, right? And I said, it's time to start a fire in the fire pit. So we start a fire in the little campsite fire pit that they have there. And I brought some um, cheap steaks that I had gotten at the store and we're going cook them over the fire. And I don't know whether it was the grates for the fire pit or maybe the meat was just bad, but it tasted terrible. John and I took one bite and we're like, we're not eating this. So we ended up eating granola bars and uh, potato chips for dinner. That was our dinner. And then I had to set up the tent, and we, I borrowed the tent from someone. I used it the week before, and it's so easy. basically just, like, throw it, and then it, like, you know, becomes a tent. The tent, I spent an hour trying to get this tent set up. John's sitting there. He's getting really frustrated because we're not playing or doing anything. And after an hour, I finally give up, and the tent's, like, got this droop thing in the middle. It's almost touching the ground, you know. It's terrible. Um, and then it was time to go to bed <laughs> after, after all this. And you'd think the rain would have cooled things down. It was like the hottest night ever. I didn't, never even thought that it got this hot at night. So we're laying there in this, this droopy tent, and I'm, we're both laying in our shorts, and we're laying there, and it's sweating so bad. We're both sweating so bad. And John says, Daddy, can we go home? And I was like, yes, let's go home right now. <laughs> we packed everything up, and finally, the end. there was an end to this terrible, calamitous, disastrous camping trip. We haven't been, done a father-son camping trip yet uh, since then. Oh, so it was hilarious to me in the moment. I, I kind of, except for the tent part, that was really frustrating, but everything else was kind of hilarious how just comically absurd this camping trip was. And this camping trip came to my mind this week as I was, as I was in this text, because um, it was just such a disaster. You keep, you keep thinking at some point, things can't keep, keep going this bad. It's gonna get better at some point, and it never did. And it never does in our text as well. But in our text, it's not some hapless young dad that's trying to hang out with his son, that's moving the calamitous story along. Instead, it's the rage-inducing decisions of the men and the leaders of Israel. This last section of Judges demonstrates what humanity is like without someone to rule over us when humans are in charge. Last week, we heard the refrain that sums up this entire last section of Judges. We're at the end of this, almost at the end of this sermon series. If you remember, the writer said that In those days, I think I have it on the slide maybe. In those days, there was no king of Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He says it in chapter 17. He says it at the very end of of this three chapter story. It's the very last chapter, it's the very last verse of the whole book of Judges. That in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And interestingly, our saga today begins with this line it says in verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. But then he leaves off that last section that everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And instead, instead of, he's gonna demonstrate what it's like when everyone does right, what's right in his own eyes with a three chapter long story that's gonna fill in the space here. So the author, he's setting us up as we're about to start reading this. And he's saying, hey, y'all, everything that is about to happen is messed up. Every, there's no prescription here. There's not telling you what to do. <laughs> there's no telling you what to do. And there's not examples in these last three chapters. Everything I'm about to describe is what happens when there's no king and things get bad. And this begs the question, because it's kind of the theme of this book that's kind of culminating here. This is our big question for today. Why do we need a king? Let's spend the first, a few minutes here just with this first, the first half of this first ver- verse why do we need a king? So our text opens by saying that there's no king in Israel. But the thing is that they actually, in truth, did have a king. And it wasn't Samson. Samson, It wasn't Jephthah. It wasn't Ahud. It wasn't any of the other judges. The Lord was their king. He declared that he was their king. He ruled over them. It was his job to protect them. It was his job to provide for them. But the text says that there was no king in Israel, not because He had abandoned his people, but because they had rejected and abandoned him. If you've been here at all through this series, or if you've read the book of Judges, you know how radically committed the Lord has been to this messed up people. It's like he can't help himself. But they have rejected his rule. They have rejected his protection. They reject his provision. And they are now here, absolutely leaderless. So instead, they chose with this choice they made to run after the local deities, any deity that is right in their own eyes to worship, to provide for them, to protect them, to be their functional king. They run to all these local deities in the ancient Near East, in the land of Canaan. They get to choose what feels right to them. They choose what seems uh, what seems right in their eyes, what promises the most happiness, whatever promises the most safety in the moment. This is what they give themselves to. And throughout Judges, we've seen that every time they do this, this idolatry leads to over and over again, misery, subjugation, destruction. This autonomy that they keep choosing, which the author describes here in verse one, instead of of choosing simple dependence on their king, this autonomy that they keep clamoring for is the biggest curse for this people. Now, when I say autonomy, we're talking about autonomy a lot in this text, in this sermon. Autonomy, by autonomy, we don't mean uh, the ability to tie your own shoes or the ability having a driver's license, that sense of agency, right? Or taking the initiative at work. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about autonomy. Um, autonomy, what we mean by autonomy here, what the author is talking about, is the, the, the um, deciding you, me, deciding what is right and wrong, what is good and evil. Deciding what I give myself to. That I get to decide what is good and evil, what is right and wrong to do with my time. I get to decide what to do with my time. I get to decide what to do with my body, with my future, with my energy, with my money, with my, bot, with my sexuality, with my commitments, that I make meaning for my life. And I decide, I choose my own purpose and how to get there. This is what the autonomy that he's talking about here. And there's, that's kind of a very secular idea of autonomy. We have kind of a, a Christian quote version of autonomy too, I think. And maybe this resonates with you a little bit. It does with me. There's this idea, even among Christians, that the Lord gets to somehow control your life in a, this vague way, this private way, this inner way. This, maybe he gets to control your thought world. Uh, maybe he saves your soul, but the rest of what you do, he's vaguely kind of concerned about that. He's kind of up to you. Uh, but as long as you, here's kind of the deal, is as long as you merely con- uh, assent, assent that you believe that he exists, and maybe that he's gonna help you throughout the week, or if you got a bad case on the Mondays, he'll be there for you. Kind of, It's kind of the deal we make with him, that that's all it means that he's Lord and that he's king. The rest is up to you to decide. Um, I was reading something in seminary that was kind of addressing this, and it still hits me to this day. Um, the author was explaining how the idea, the word king, the word king or kingship, monarchy, doesn't really, like, land with us 21st century Americans. It kind of shouldn't. Like, it's like a fairy tale word, right? This is an ancient, this is an ancient word that doesn't really make sense. We don't, it's, not, it's, it's not a concept that we actually are familiar with. So he had the idea, and I think this is pretty helpful, is maybe contextualizing it for us. That instead of, or in addition to understanding God as our king, the Lord is our king. Um, he's also, think of it this way, he is our commander in chief. He is the commander in chief of your life. He is the president of your life. He is the four star general of your life. He has absolute 100% control of your life. He, he, this is what he, um, he has made you for, to have this control. Because He is not just your four star general, he's also your owner. He owns you. He is your owner, he is your boss, he is your CEO. He's not just a genie that you pull out to help you get through Monday. The Lord is your owner. He is your boss. This is what kingship means in the Bible. All parts of your life, every realm, every relationship that you have is governed by him. How you treat those other people, how you act in these certain situations, in these contexts that God has you in is absolutely under the authority of the king. Everything, everything about you is subject to him. Your life is subject to him. Your death is subject to him and he's got it. And what this text does is show what, ha- it shows what happens when individuals, uh, when families, when societies, when humans decide they, they're gonna throw off the shackles of being ruled by him. And they're, gonna, they're going to decide for themselves. They're gonna decide what's better. They know what's better. They know what's safer. They know what's gonna make them happier. They know what makes more sense. Way more, they say, than their boss, than this boss, than this general, than this president, than this king. And this text is not unlike, it's very similar, maybe it's very similar to, um, you know, the many holo- there are many Holocaust museums throughout the world. And one of the main reasons that Holocaust museums exist is to remind us that this happened, that this actually happened, because we're so prone to forget how bad we can get. That humanity indeed does get this bad. So that we would never forget that this is what happens when men, and women, run from obeying their master, their owner, their king, and does whatever they think is right instead. So our text today is a big reminder that without our covenant Lord ruling over us, it does get this bad. Even if it's not as dramatic or grotesque as our text today, the consequences of autonomy always ruin. It always corrupts. It always destroys. And we've all felt this in major ways in our lives. Why do we need a king? Because autonomy is actually a curse. Being on your own, doing it on your own, making your life is a curse. Rejecting the Lord's rule and deciding for yourself leads you and all the people around you into misery. For example, this is what consisted the first sin in the garden in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve, and we'll talk about Adam right now, believed the lie from the serpent that God didn't love them. And then they sought to break free of depending on this God who they thought was against them by eating the fruit that he had commanded them not to eat. And you know what Adam discovered as he was beginning to experience and discover this autonomy in the garden. You know what he, the first thing he did, okay? The first thing he did, even before he ate the fruit, was he let Eve eat the fruit first. He was there with her, right? He let her eat the fruit, like, like a lab rat. Like, oh, God said that when we eat the fruit, we're gonna die. Let's see what that means, Eve. Let's see what happens when Eve eats the fruit, <laughs> right? And then when God comes to them and questions them about why they're naked, what does Adam do? He basically says, Adam, Adam says, God, it's not me. It's that woman you gave me. Kill her. Don't kill me. It's her fault. Why would he do that? Well, before he ate the fruit, before he gave in to this autonomy, when he was trusting the Lord, when the Lord was his king, he knew that the Lord had his back. He knew that the Lord provided for and protected him. There was a sense, there was a sense in which he didn't have to worry about the present Adam didn't have to worry about the future. He didn't have to worry about how he would end up. He didn't have to worry what other people thought about him. He didn't have to worry about whether or not his life had meaning or purpose because he was living for this God who's so much bigger than than him. He was living for the joy and the glory of God, which has eternal significance. He didn't have to think, what is my purpose? That question would make no sense to Adam before he found this autonomy. And God could tell Adam what to do, and Adam would gladly do it because he knew his creator, his sustainer, loved him deeply and cared for him. And at the end of the day, God's got him. Everything I, so everything that I just described there, everything that I just described, that was all derived from this relationship that Adam enjoyed as God's possession, as God's loyal subject. And when Adam forsook the Lord, when he ran from his king, he forsook all the benefits of having this covenant God as his king, of being the Lord's servant. He has none of that anymore. He, he, there's no promise of provision. There's no promise of protection. There's no promise of peace. There's no promise of purpose. Nothing. It's all gone. And now, Adam's all alone. Adam's all alone in his autonomy with a God he's trying to forget, a God that. A God that, because he believes the lie of the the serpent, he thinks this God's actually out to get him. Adam, so Adam, the only option for Adam is he has to become his own end. He has to. It's the curse of autonomy. He has to take care of himself because in the end of the day, eternally, at the foundation, nobody else will. So he becomes his own God, his small g God. He becomes his own king. And if anybody gets in my way, whether it's God, whether it's Eve, they're out the door. They're dead, uh, if it comes to it. So we'll come back to this in a moment. But why do you need a king? It's because autonomy, living without a king, is a curse. It's absolutely a curse. It's not how we were made to live. It's not what, it's, it's you know, making your own meaning. That doesn't make any sense in the Bible. There's all this meaning for you that we were made with, that he made us with. Deciding what my life is for, um, it's not what we were made for. We were made to be protected by something, someone bigger than us and to trust him so that we can do his will, his good will for us, which is joy, which is like our joy. We need a king because because autonomy is a curse, okay? We, that's our answer. Autonomy is a curse. Uh, but let's add a deeper question. What? Why is autonomy a curse? This is our question number two. Why is autonomy a curse? So, let's do the thing I'm dreading the most, and let's go through the story. So the background uh, to the story, you know, there is virtually no one following the Lord at this time in Israel when this story happens. They've all gone their own ways. They're all deciding their own gods. They're deciding what is good and evil. And we meet this Levite and this concubine. And just one more reminder, the author's already set it up. Everything that happens here is messed up and wrong, okay? This is not... Not, nothing is being lauded here or celebrated. Um, so the Levite has this concubine, and the concubine is unfaithful to him. Now, co- a concubine was like a second-class wife. They were there to, along with your wife, you'd have a concubine to provide children, physical pleasure, um, but they're not granted the rank of wife. And the Bible never condones taking a concubine or a second wife. In fact, it says, <laughs> it says a man shall leave his father and his wife and cling to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. It's very clear. And every time there is uh, polygamy or concubines in the Bible, it's either very heavily frowned upon or there's disaster because of what they're doing. So this concubine is unfaithful to this Levite and then leaves and goes to stay with her father in Bethlehem. And after four months, finally, the Levite comes around and he's going to go, he leaves, goes to Bethlehem, and he's going to talk kindly to this his concubine. It feels so weird saying concubine as a person, right? Concubine. He goes to meet with this concubine to speak gently to her and to woo her back. And it doesn't really talk about whether her response is. It seems like she's, she goes with him. But the, da- the father-in-law loves this guy, apparently. In fact, he likes him so much, he loves him so much that he won't let him leave. They stay there three days, and then the father-in-law kind of tricks him into staying another day, and then tricks him into staying late in the, in the afternoon on the next day. And finally, the Levite's like, I gotta go home. So he packs up his stuff, packs up his his servant, his wife on his donkeys, and they're on their way. And after about two to three hours, that's about how long it would have been, they come by this town, Jebus, which eventually would become Jerusalem when David t- took it, takes it later. But they come by this town filled with Jebusites, and the, the servant's like, hey, let's, it's getting late. Let's go stay there. And the Levites like, I'm not staying with those foreigners. No, we're going to go stay with Israelites like us. So they pass by Jebus, and they come to after two or three hours, they come to this city, Gibeah. And Gibeah is a town of Israel. It's a Benjaminite is one of the tribes. They come to this town, Gibeah. And that's when everything gets start really creepy, like horror movie creepy. So they're, they're at they're this town, Gibeah. They're in the town square. And it's like nobody's coming out. You imagine people look, looking out the windows and nobody's coming out to meet them in the square. And this old man comes in from the country. And he's not even from Gibeah himself. He's a foreigner to Gibeah as well. He's another Israelite from Ephraim. And he tells them, don't spend the night in the square. Come stay with me. There's some kind of hint that something is going on. So he takes them into his house and they're eating and they're drinking. And then things get horrible. That night is a Levite and the old man. They're eating and they're drinking. There's a pounding on the door. Some men of the city have come and they demand that the Levite be brought out so that they can sexually abuse them. And as we go through the story, for the sake of younger sensitive ears and sensitive hearts. I'm just going to use this vague word abuse, but it stands for something much more specific and horrible. Um, And as horrible as, as it is that the men of this town would come and, you know, violently demand this, the response of the old man is even worse. He offers to send out his daughter and the concubine instead to be abused. And when the men aren't happy with this arrangement, the Levite seizes his concubine and makes her go out there. And all night they abuse her instead of the Levite. Horrible. And then verse 27, it gets worse. Verse 27, her, I think I have a text up here. Verse 27, her master rose up in the morning and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, I think do we have the text on the slide. We might not, I might've messed up. Verse 27, her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, you know, hold on a second. First thing you notice is that after he pushed his concubine out, he went to sleep, and he rose up, and then he rose up in the morning, and he's on his way to go home, just leaving her with whatever happened to her. He doesn't even know or seem to care, and then it gets worse. Behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. And he said to her, get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey and the man rose up and went away off into the sunset to his home. All right, so after this night of torture, he finds her and he has absolutely no concern for her whatsoever. As she's unconscious or dead there, where it's really vague what hap- uh, how she's doing right now, Probably he just never checked. That's why he never says. He says, get up, let's get going. So he takes, her, he takes her body home and he divides it up and sends it to the 12 tribes of Israel. He calls them out. He's basically calling them out to war because he wants to get vengeance for ostensibly destroying his property, this woman. The end for now until next week. So why is autonomy a curse? Um, every person in this story uses their power, ends up using their power against the powerless to serve themselves. In fact, the whole rest of this, of this story is men using their power against women and it, it, all the way to the end of this chapter. And it's terrible. But in this text, the men of the town use their power against the old man and the Levite. The old man uses his power against his daughter and the concubine. And the Levite uses his power as a husband to, uh, with what he does with his concubine. And remember, basic, just, if you didn't catch this, remember basically what happened was that they want, the men of the city wanted him. They wanted the Levite and he threw her out instead. They didn't even want her, but he threw her out instead. He sacrificed her for himself. In the next chapter, there's this detail. He's gonna leave out this detail when he's talking to the Israelite leaders that he's the one who threw her out. But let's zoom in for a second. I want to zoom in for a second on this Levite. And let's assume because of the intro to the story and because of what he has done, that the chapter, this chapter, Noah says there is no king in Israel and he's doing what is right in his own eyes. This is describing him. Let's assume that this Levite has chosen autonomy and that he has become his own end, like Adam, like humanity. Now, if this is true, if this is true, Um, that he's on his own. If this is true, that there is no God or that God is against him. If this is true, then what he did to his concubine makes sense. Remember, this is the mindset of autonomy. I am on my own. I am my own. I am all there is. No one can tell me what to do. No one cares about me. So I'm not gonna listen to anybody else. I am the only one that has my back. And I'm the only one that can ultimately protect myself. The present and the future are up to me and me alone. It doesn't make sense for me to go out there. Why would I? And he's already decided, this woman, he's already decided with his own eyes that this woman is a second-class wife, second-class human being. All it ta- if all it takes for him to survive is to push her out the door, then that's what has to be done. It's what Adam would have done, right? <laughs> there is like something um, almost heroic about... It sounds kind of heroic about making your own way, about being autonomous, about being the captain of your soul, about making a name for yourself, about doing it all on your own and forging your own way. There's something almost heroic sounding about that. But here's the thing about autonomous people, like we've been describing. You cannot trust them. You are a means to their end of themselves, They can't live for others. The only time they would live for another person is it would be if it benefited themselves. The most autonomous people in the world are cowards. They can't live for other people. It's only someone who knows, listen, it's only someone who knows that they are deeply and eternally taken care of in life and in death and have entrusted themselves to this king, to the Lord, they are the only ones that can actually lay down their lives for other people, like this Levite was being called to do in this text. W.E.B. Du Bois, think I'm pronouncing that right, um, he was the first African-American to graduate from Harvard University in 1895, and he wrote an essay in 1928 about the Confederate general Robert E. Lee. And in it, he argues that it wasn't Lee's, love of slavery that led him to lead the Virginia and the Confederate army in the Civil War. This is what Dubois says. This is what it says. This is how, what he concludes here. He says, Lee followed Virginia, not because he particularly loved slavery, but because he did not have the moral courage to stand against his family and his clan. He was asked to lead armies against human progress and Christian decency. And did not dare refuse. So, according to Du Bois, Lee went against what he seemed to know was right because, in the vacuum, in the terror that is at the bottom of autonomy, he was sucked into making and finding his own meaning apart from God. In this instance, in his family, in his clan. He couldn't go against them because he didn't have the security that comes with, with submitting yourself to the king. Autonomy is a curse because rather than security and meaning or happiness or freedom, you're trapped and you're scared and you're alone. No one is coming for you, and you have to take care of yourself no matter what the cost. And what the Levite does makes sense in in this mindset. Imagine a world, if you will, where this was the case. What might it look like? What would it look like would it look like your family that you grew up with in some way? Was, there, was this a dynamic in your family? Would it look like the, your workplace, your current workplace in some way? Would this kind of way of thinking, would it, what would it look like in the church today? You know, this is actually, this happens in the context of the, of the church. This is the Old Testament Israel is the church. And do you see, do you ever see and feel the resonance of this in your own life? Places where, even though you believe and you trust in this king, you still don't. There are places where we don't. And there are gonna be places like this until we die, until we are completely sanctified glorified. Here's a good question to ask yourself this week to see where you are living autonomously. And a a question is this, where do I believe God doesn't care? Where do I believe that God is not going to take care of me? Those places are the places where you set yourself up as king and you have to protect yourself and take care of yourself. Can you name some places this week where you still believe, and we're all going to believe this in some places till we die, that he doesn't love you in this area, he doesn't have your back, he's not going to take care of you. So you feel like you have to do what is right in your own eyes instead, whether it's cheating or lying or um, slandering someone, giving your body and self to someone that you're not married to? Or maybe just being really hard on your kids, not because you love them, but because they embarrass you or they make you look like a failure. They're somehow managing to threaten your, the, the success of your autonomy or your feeling of being able to take care of yourself. Where are those places where you believe God doesn't love you and won't take care of you? Autonomy is a curse. Why? Because it's a curse through which we ruin everything we ruin ourselves. Everything we touch in our autonomy, we ruin, including ourselves. I think that's the next slide. Something like that. We ruin everything and ourselves. Which, this leads to our final question. If autonomy is a curse, which with, with which we ruin everything and ourselves, and we haven't even talked about what we're due from God, the punishment for <laughs> rebelling against him like this, but how do we get free from autonomy? Freedom from autonomy. <laughs> What does that look like? Well, we're not going to find the answer in this text. We're not going to find it in this chapter, and we'll see if Pastor Richard can find some good news in the next two chapters. I'd be interested if he he can. Um, But Sinclair Ferguson, I'm going to totally steal something from him. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a a PCA pastor, and he tells a story. Um, It's an illustration, not a true story. But imagine a father brings his daughter to Toys R Us, if that's still around. He brings his daughter to Toys R Us to show them. To sh- and She says, show me everything. Daughter, show me everything you want for Christmas. So she goes around and she, sh- she shows him teddy bears. She shows him the stuffies. That's what we call them in the Cody household. Uh, the dollhouse, the huge Elsa 2 doll. And she's so excited. And then when she's done, the father leans down and says to her, daughter, let me tell you why I brought you here. I brought you here to let you know you're not going to get any of this. You're not going to get any of it. I'm not going to give you anything for Christmas. It's almost sadder than the concubine story, isn't it? <laughs> this, said Ferguson, this is what we all believe in our hearts about the God of creation. I don't think he has my interest. I don't think he cares. He's against me. He only shows me good things that take it away from me. I need to go through this life and I need to do it my way. His way is misery. If this is the bent of your heart, no wonder you can't trust him. No wonder it's so hard. It makes sense. But what if God was not like this? What if instead of a coward like this Levite was, what if God was a hero for bad people? What if he sent us a hero? And this hero was anti-autonomous. He was free from autonomy. He didn't come to do his will, but he was 100,000% doing his father's will all the time instead of his own. And what if you were unfaithful to this hero? What if you spurned this hero, ran from this hero, and his response was to come and get you? And what if coming to get you meant he had to die? What if you had a hero like this? Would such a hero be worth your life? Would such a hero be worth your dependence? your trust. Freedom from the curse of autonomy, ironically, is found in utter dependence. Utter dependence on the one who gave his life for you. This is a question, answer to my third question. Freedom freedom from the curse of autonomy is found in dependence. The king with all the power, all the grace, all the mercy, Depending on him, this is where you can actually be free now. If I know that he's got me, I'm finally free. If I'm accepted and loved and cared for by him, it doesn't matter what my family thinks. It doesn't matter what my friends think. It doesn't matter what my culture thinks of me. I'm free. I'm finally free. If I know that God is going to take care of me, I am free free not to cheat, or steal, or lie, or gossip. Those are all ways we grasp for control. And I don't need to control anymore. He's got me. All I need to do is trust him and do what he says. If I know, another example, if I know that the God who I hated died for me when I was his enemy, then instead of having to get back on my enemies, I'm free now to love them. Their soul is in God's hand. Their soul was in his hands. And God did this for me. I'm not free to do it for others. Paul describes it this way, what Jesus has done for, what God has done for us in Jesus. He says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15, he says, Jesus died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, aka being autonomous, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Jesus was sent to live for you, die for you, so that you would live and I would live for him. Christian, this week, is there anywhere in your life where you're living for yourself, where Jesus wants to heal you and make you wholly live for him? He's got you. He is worth it. You can trust him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, giving us really hard texts like this. And thank you for not holding back and pretending like reality isn't real and bad things aren't bad and darkness isn't darkness. We pray that you would shine the light of Jesus into our hearts, So these places where we think you don't care, these places where you think, you think we've been abandoned. Show us that we're not. Show us that you do care for us. Open our eyes to these places so that we can turn and trust in Jesus instead. And we pray we would have mar, lives marked by beautiful dependence on our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And we pray this in his name, amen.